Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Anita Heiss, one of Australia's most loved authors and personalities to Books, 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 to talk about her beautiful latest novel, Bila Yurangolangudore, published by Simon & Schuster in May 2021. It has made Australian publishing history by being the first commercial work of fiction published with the front cover presenting a title in an Indigenous language. I'll just tell you a little bit about Anita before we start our conversation. Dr Anita Heiss is a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales. She's one of Australia's most well-known authors, publishing across genres, including non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial fiction, memoir and children's novels. Her books include Tidas, her memoir, Am I Black Enough for You, I'm Not Racist But, and Growing Up Aboriginal. Her last novel before this one, Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, published in 2018, was a finalist for the prestigious Dublin International Literary Award. She has performed her own work and lectured on Aboriginal literature at universities and embassies around the world. She's also Professor of Communications at the University of Queensland. This beautiful novel has been receiving wonderful reviews and has been described by The Guardian as a novel that turns Australian long mythologised settler history into a raw and resilient heart song. And great news, it's just been shortlisted for the 2021 ARA Historical Novel Prize in the adult category. Congratulations for that, Anita, and welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction and for the congratulations. It's the most exciting thing I think that's happened to me uh, in terms of, you know, literary space in my long career. Uh, That's wonderful, Anita. Well, all fingers crossed for you. What I would like to do... Can I do an acknowledgement to country and language? Yes. Been here from? Yes, please. That would be wonderful. Iridu Marang, Yundu Yanada Heis, Baladu Radri Gilang, Rambiji Bulbrangli Bormir Gandhi, Bala Williams, Yindamaladu, Balga Balga Galangbu, Balagibangbu, Balambangbu, Bulwaradjuri, Nirimbangbu, Yindamaladu, Yagaragu, Turubugu, Mianjingu, Maingu. Hi, everybody. My name is Anita Heiss and I have Wiradjuri belonging from Arambi and Brungle Missions in central New South Wales. I'm a Williams. I have respect for my elders, my ancestors, those who have passed over and Wiradjuri country. But the, today I pay my respects to the traditional owners of country here in the Anjan. That's Brisbane uh, and they are the Yagara and Turbul peoples. Could you start by telling us what is Bila Yarodangolangdure about? Okay, well, let's translate the title for your listeners. So, Abiliata Dangalang translates to Bila is a Wiradjuri word that means river. Yarodang means dream. Uh, Galang is plural, so many dreams. 
and uh, durée is the action of having the dreams. Our grammar is very different to English. It's very, it's really, really difficult to to learn. So yeah, so the easy translation to that is river of dreams. Story opens with the great flood of Gundagai in eighteen fifty two, um, which we will unpack, you know, during our conversation today. Um, but essentially, so that part of the story is about heroism, and the heroism uh, is thread throughout the story. It's but the story overall is about heroism and homecomings. It's about connection to country. It's about life on the land in central New South Wales for Wiradjuri people in, you know, the mid-19th century, so 1850s and 1860s. But it's also about what we see throughout the story is life for settler women as well. We, we see that through the relationship between the two characters, Louisa and Wagadine. So for me, um, it's really, I, it's a story that I want, that has come from my heart, that has come from the heart of Wiradjuri country, that has been written for the heart the hearts of all the readers. Anita, would you like to just read a short extract for us to give listeners a flavour of the book? I will. So I'm going to, we're going to, what will, what your listeners will, will understand throughout our conversation and hopefully when they get a chance to read the book is the relationship, is there is a very important relationship between Wagadine and Louisa. I'm going to read a short period, a short piece between Louisa and Wagadine. It's about halfway through the novel. Wagadine feels challenged. I have not changed. She's adamant, remembering her father's final words, that people don't change but become a different form of their original self. I'm not different. I am the same Wiradjuri Yina I have always been. She boldly uses her language and places her hand firmly on her chest, reclaiming an identity the Bradleys have tried to take from her since she was first forced to work for them. A new town and a new home, even a new window does not make a new me. This is just silly. I am Wagadine. I will always be me. A new place and things won't change that. It is as if in her misery she has found an inner strength. She has become fearless, unafraid of challenging Louisa. My life looks different to you because I have a window and curtains and a better dress and shoes, but... She pats herself again. I am the same on the inside, in here. Louisa looks hurt, disappointed. Neither of the women know where to turn, as if looking at each other would be even more unsettling. But while Wagadine wants Louisa to understand what she's trying to explain, the last thing she wants to do is hurt her feelings. She is, after all, the only person she has to lean on here in Wagga Wagga. She's beginning to realise that Louisa needs her too, not just to help around the house, but as an emotional support, since she has no other female companionship. In the uncomfortable silence, Wagadine bends over and picks up the broom. She looks at it for a moment, considers it its long handle and smiles. Having found a way to explain what she's been trying to express to Louisa, she will try one more time. Touch this. She says to Louisa, who looks perplexed, go on, touch it, please. Louisa runs her hand along the upper length of the broom handle. What is it made of? Louisa frowns. Well, wood, of course. Yes, Wagadine agrees. And where does wood come from? Well, she looks at Wagadine suspiciously. It, it comes from trees. Wagadine can hear the frustration in Louisa's voice at having to answer such basic questions. So the handle is made of wood, 
and wood comes from trees. And so you could say that this handle is a tree in a different form. Louisa considers the words, looks at the broom handle, touches it again. She looks back to Wagadome. The tree hasn't really changed, Louisa. It's just in a different form now. Louisa nods. I am the tree, Louisa. I'm still the same, just a bit different here because of how I live, but that hasn't changed who I am inside, who I am as a person. I'm still the Wagadine I was the day you met me and for all the years before you met me, and I will be me for all the days ahead, just as her father had said she would be. Anita, thank you. The opening scenes of the Gundagai flood of 1852 are based on a true story. Could you tell us a bit about that story? Sure. Uh, in June of 1852, over a period of three days, the New South Wales town of Gundagai flooded. And over those three days, a third of the town drowned. It was a town of about 250, um, population of 250. So we're, we're talking about 80 people drowning in this flood. It is Australia's greatest natural disaster. Mm -hmm. um, and so during that flood, uh, you know, there was only a few buildings left standing, livestock, you know, was lost and so forth. So the town was pretty much decimated. You wrote this book to honour the courageous Wiradjuri men, Yari and Jucky Jucky, who braved the flood to ferry people to safety, as they do in your book. Were they honoured in their lifetime for their heroism? Well, just if I can I just say, yeah, they, the, the men were, there were four men actually that went out during the flood. So there was Yari and Jackie Jackie, as you mentioned, and there was Tommy Davis and Long Jimmy. Um, Yari and Jackie Jackie were the men that actually managed to save, thankfully, many lives. Uh, 59 lives is, is the number that I've read. Um, but it's interesting. So they were heroes. They were the heroes of the town. In their lifetime, unfortunately, they weren't recognised until much later. So it wasn't until, I think, 1875 when they were given engraved breastplates each and granted lifelong pensions that were pulled together by the settlers themselves. In your book, we meet the main character, Wagadine, in 1838 when she's four years old and she's with her father, Yari, who's trying to give advice to a white man. What is the advice? Well, the advice is very simple. He says, do not build here, boss. And he's trying to explain, it's, they, built, they built the town on a floodplain. He's trying to say, this place has flooded before, it will flood again, and the water will go this height. Very simple. And which is, and the, unfortunately for everybody, that advice was ignored. We see um, Wagadine and her father return to their camp, and we see them embraced and greeted by the whole of their, their beautiful close-knit family. Could you tell us a little bit about that family? So, you know, they all live on, on the, by the river as well, in a different part of the river. And the family, there are a number of different camps and a, and a communal fire. And everybody sits around their, you know, kids and dogs and aunties and uncles and cousins. Um, and they, they, they share their meals and they share their stories. And that is, that's their life. Um, and of course, when they were, when uh, Wagadine and her father returned to the camp that day, they're talking about the change changes of, to the town and the landscape and the land um, and rules and so forth and, and how white people just never listen to them. The next time we meet Wagadine is 14 years later in 1852. She's 18 and she's been living with a white family, the Bradleys, since she was 14. Why does she live with them? What work does she do for them and how does she feel about that? 
Well, the Dine, like many Aboriginal, young Aboriginal women at the time uh, and for a long time after, uh, was a servant for the Bradleys and uh, and her father was the stockman for the Bradleys. And so her role was really to cook and clean and, um, and do all the chores that the matriarch at the time uh, asked her or told her to do. So she really was invisible other than that she was expected to be there to prepare the meals and so forth. She had she didn't speak unless she was spoken to. She didn't enter a room unless she was invited or told to. She never, obviously, she never sat to eat with the family. So um, it was very much, you know, the word, the language we use around that also is in, that, serve, that servitude um, is almost an act of slavery because mm. it never real, um, there was no equality for a start. And it was, was she paid? Was she or her family paid for the work? I, my in in the story, there's no talk of payment. So she's given a room that she without a window that we know that she lives in off the kitchen, and then she's allowed to return to her family um, on Sundays. That she'll go and visit her family on Sundays. And when we talk about not just Wagadine, because it is a story of you know we we meet other characters who are Aboriginal stockmen and so forth, um, and you know they were fed in rations, but though that food was really about giving them the sustenance to do their job for them. Mm you know, for the masters. We next see the great flood of the Murrumbidgee River. What does the Bradley family do? How do, how do they try to uh, respond to that and to survive? Well, the Bradley family uh, wait a long time before they actually move to higher ground in their own home rather than moving to higher ground as other towns, some of the townsfolk had done. So they sandbag. I had to learn about how to fill a sandbag. They sandbag their home and so forth. But it takes some time before they they all move to the roof of their their house before we and where we can hear what's going on in town. And I and I learned all that through reading about reading material that is already documented. And we can hear the screams in the dark of night and we can hear, um, you know, the raging waters and the floods and the storm and so forth. Um, you know, there's the matriarch and the, one of the sons, there's some prayers, quiet prayers and so forth. And Wagadine the entire time is concerned. She, she believes in her heart that her family will be safe because they know what to do during these times. But her concern is she can't swim. And she's worried that they're not going to take her to wherever they're going. So they're talking about going up into the roof and she's concerned that they do eventually take her with them. And she sits in, you know, she sits watching and waiting and hearing and, and praying to Bayami. As you say, the Wiradjuri people knew what to do. And for that reason, many of the white settlers die, but the Wiradjuri people survive. What did they do? How did they stay safe? Well, they moved to higher ground because they they'd seen they know how the river works. They'd seen the floods come and go previously, even though they camped also in floodplains and ceremonies in floodplains. Um, you know, they had humpies, obviously that they could you know were movable. We learned that in the beginning of the story that these new buildings by the settlers were built not to be moved like a standard humpy fort that the Wiradjuri mob lived in. So obviously that they, they moved to higher ground. And what about um, Wagadine? She's up there on the roof with the Bradley family. Her father plays a role in the rescue of some members of that family. Tell us about that. So her father is Yari and he is a stockman for the Bradleys and he's one of the heroes. So what what he does is he goes out uh, with uh, the other three men 
And those canoes could only take one person at a time. And so when I was researching this and I went out on the river on a canoe to try and understand the strength and the uh, the knowledge that they must have had to know how to work that river, raging floodwaters, dark of night, one person at a time. I can't even imagine, incredibly lean, not built like we are with all the foods and things we have today. Um, and so he was out there for the three days and nights um, and eventually he finds, you know, obviously part of this is fictional because I had mm. to imagine what it was like. So, you know, I got in a canoe and I paddled, but I had to imagine what it must have been like for him. And I, we do know that he saved this many lives, um, 49 lives. And so we, um, and from that, you know, he eventually in the story finds his daughter um, and the Bradleys and, and manages to, I'm going to give too much away, manages to save some of the Bradleys. Yes. So James and David Bradley, the two brothers, after the flood, after they've been rescued, bring Wagadine back to their ruined home. How do they treat her after that? Do they treat her any differently as a result of the fact that her father, uh, Yari, has saved their lives? I wish I could say I wish I could say yes, and that that she was you know an equal in the in the home. But no, I mean obviously there's a, there's a lot of things going on there. James Bradley never liked her. They never they never referred to her by her name. They called her Wilma because it was too difficult to say Wagadine. Um, and she was only you know Aboriginal people were were thought to be lesser human beings. You know we were you know, the lowest rung of, of, you know, human existence. So there was this always a superior um, concept in terms of, you know, partic- and men, white men, white women, black men, black women. So they were at the, we were at the bottom rung. Um, there is grief, they're grieving. So apart, so on top of being um, un, unkind most of the time, there's this, you know, double, you know, whammy with the grief that they're going through. There, we, there is a, a particular way in which David um, manoeuvres himself around uh, both, you know, mentally and physically around Wagadine that we see throughout the novel as well. And that increases when uh, the matriarch of the family has gone, although her words to him stay stay with him, and, and, and I did that on purpose. So... Um, her life is still the same, if not worse, because now it's just her, the mother's gone and she's the only female presence and neither of them really know how to behave around women generally. So then James Bradley meets and marries a widow called Louisa. Could you tell us a little bit about her? What's she like? Louisa is, I, I would say Louisa is headstrong. She is resilient in that she's lost all of her immediate family and we learn throughout the novel that she doesn't actually speak about her any family acts at all really she doesn't speak about uh her mother the relationship she had with her family she doesn't speak about anybody back in the UK which is very different to Wagadine's experience of family and so Louisa is a Quaker she wants to help the Aboriginal people and the convicts she is the first person that treats Wagadine with any level of respect simply by calling her by her first name, insisting that she doesn't curtsy and treat her with, you know, all the the pomp and pageantry that other white people would expect. She invites Wagadine to drink tea with her and sit on the couch and 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 speaks to her as you and I would, you know, speak to each other in a, in a, you know, as strangers meeting for the first time as well. 
as a normal human being. And, and Anita, so- that's, that is something that was typical of the Quaker people, isn't it? I know that you did quite a lot of research about the Quakers. Uh, what, what were their concerns? What were they like generally? Uh, how did they behave towards the Indigenous people? Well, it's interesting because uh, someone said to me, you should make this character a Quaker. I raced home, I Googled, you know, I was still reading all this and that the Quakers came to Australia from memory 1834 and their two main missions in coming to Australia were to, um, were equality, getting equality for Aboriginal people and for the rights of convicts. And I thought it, this is a perfect way, this is the perfect character to drive this story because I know that that character, a Quaker at that time, in their heart and would have this incredible sense of goodwill mm. and this incredible moral and ethical um, dilemma in working in a house where there was a servant and so forth. But they also, you know, we, we meet Louisa at the races and, you know, the Quakers also were uh, obviously concerned about cruelty to animals and so forth. So I could through Louisa, we could look at all these aspects of society that need to be discussed and challenged and talked about in, in, you know, in our novels and so forth. I think with Louisa, though, as much as uh, the desire of the Quakers and her beliefs and everything, we see, we see she has an epiphany at some point in the novel where she realises she has not um, achieved the goals that she set out for herself. And I see this today. I see this feel, I see this today all the time. We see people who want to be part of reconciliation processes and so forth, and they want to do the right thing and they want to be, or they want to be seen to be doing the right thing, but they still don't want to, um, they still don't want to commit the human resources or the coin that that will it will take to make things happen and change. And, and Louisa is, Louisa, you know, Louisa exists in many of the women that I still meet today. And Louisa, yes. I, need, I need to say this for your listeners, Louisa is not a, a bad character. Louisa was living the life that she had been dealt living on the land. It wasn't easy either. I mean, obviously it was completely different, but, it, you know, white women settlers would actually have difficult times on country as well. And she was living the life. She had a husband who was a boozer. There were, you know, um, she was lonely. She she depended on Wagadine. And I think that this is the, the difference in the relationship. She needed Wagadine for everything, where all Wagadine wanted from Louisa was her freedom. Mm. And you mentioned the husband, James, who we see develops into a big drinker. How does he feel about Louisa's relationship with Wagadine and her a, you know, generally well-intentioned attempt to treat her as an equal and as a friend. James really just wants Louisa to be the wife, the social wife, um, and in the bedroom, and that's really he, all he wants her to be. He he has no time for the blacks whatsoever. He's aspiring to be the mayor. That's going to d- damage his career. But he had no time for for black people prior to moving to Wagga. Anyway. Um, there is, you know, legislation around the, you know, fraternising with uh, between settlers and Aboriginal people. You, you know, Aboriginal people couldn't carry arms at the time. There was obviously no sale of alcohol to Aboriginal people. Um, there was various acts of legislation. Um, and he, he, I think he's quite condescending. He's he, not quite, he is condescending because, you know, Louisa is, is, is intelligent. She's well-read. She's come to Australia with her own wealth um, and but he doesn't want her to actually live any of that part of her life. And so 
Um, he doesn't want her forming a friendship with Wagadine because he doesn't want he doesn't want her or his life to be associated with the local Rotary people. The Bradleys decide to leave Gundagai and to move to Wagga Wagga, and they insist that Wagadine must come with them, even although this is against her wishes. What right do they have to force her to come with them? Right. Well, around the world at the time, um, UK, I think Canada, uh, the USA, New Zealand, there were Masters and Servants Acts, the Masters and Servants Act of 1840. And um, actually throughout 18th and 19th centuries, these, these were acts that regulated regulations between employees and employers. Um, and as little as one hour's absence um, for a servant without permission could lead to punishment or prison. From the point of first contact in New South Wales, uh, Aboriginal people were forced to work for the colonisers and for the settlers. And so um, while it was not this, this act, this Masters and Servants Act, was not specifically for Aboriginal people, um, I did have a legal team at uh, Rose Norton Fulbright do a whole lot of research for me and their, their research found that it was highly likely that Aboriginal people, Wiradjuri people in New South Wales, would have lived in fear of this act. And so that was if that was brought to them and saying, you have to do this because we have this act. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're not reading in, in English mm-hmm. and English wouldn't have even been fluent then, then that they would have just been doing what they were told to do. So and certainly that's what we see in the novel. We see David Bradley come and speak to Wagadine's father and he basically says she, she doesn't have a choice. We're going and she has to come with us. And that's that's the only reason that her father really gives her up because he yeah. believes that he has no choice. And that that moment is one of the, I think, one of the most dramatic moments in the novel where Wobbedine can't understand why her father is letting her go. He saved their lives. Mm-hmm. They owe him. Um, and But his view is they saved your life and that we also have no, we have no say. This is the way it is. And for me, that's one of, that was one of the hardest moments for me to write because it, it's devastatingly sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, so she goes. Particularly, you you write that so beautifully and you certainly feel that this is an absolutely pivotal point of the novel and that, that it is a just a heartbreaking episode. It's made all the more poignant, I think, because you give a lovely description of the farewell that her family and her kin put on for her. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, they do a smoking ceremony and song and dance. And, and when I was writing that scene, it, I was writing it from my own experience of not farewelling but of welcoming. So every time I would go down to Wagga for language lessons, uh, the, the beginning of each session is, is a smoking ceremony in a circle and there's song and, we, and everybody walks into the circle. So we see that. We go and pull our gum leaves and we, we see that. I, I use that within the no, in the novel. And so we see this beautiful ceremony of love, um, of farewell, but of reminding Wagadine that wherever she wherever she walks in Wiradjuri country, like they're all there. And that is a reminder for her later on that when she dances, when she's dancing in Wiradjuri country, that her, her aunts and her mother are also dancing on the, land, the same land just up the river. And so I think for me it's also showing uh, the, the practice of, um, our, our mob understanding 
and and telling our young ones that your ancestors and your people will always be with you wherever you are. And of course, when she arrives in in Wagga, she the cockatoos are there, and that's her mother's totem. And she goes, she knows everything's going to be okay. So when she gets to um, Wagga Wagga, what is life like there for her? We have um, Louisa as they as they're travelling there. Wagadine is clearly very distressed and Louise is trying to comfort her and she says or she says or she thinks that Wagadine will be living a life of equality with her once they're in Wagga Wagga. Is that the reality? What is life like for Wagadine there? Is it any different than it was in Gundagai? Um, it's, it's, it's very different because she's lonely beyond her own comprehension, you know, and she falls into this pit of depression. And for what, I mean, that reading I did earlier actually sums up, you know, Louise's idea of her having equality was like, well, you've got a house now and you've got a room with windows and curtains. So we, we are equal because we're living in the house, but they're not equal because she still doesn't have her freedom and she doesn't have her family and it's not by her choice. Mm. And so for Wagadine, she's there now at a distance um, still cleaning a bigger house uh, for more people. Um, and, of course, now they're on a, on a property and there's stockmen that she's feeding and so forth, which we will discuss. Um, and she, she, as I say, is completely in this hole of darkness until there's, there's two moments of light which where she meets another Wiradjuri girl in the general store, Yire, and then she meets uh, Wiradjuri Stockman, Yinjimara. Let's but go even, to the first of those when she okay. meets Wire. How does she feel and what does that what do, what happens as a result of her meeting Wire? She meets Yure in the general store and they just very and secretly have a conversation because they know they're not meant, you know, they have no rights. They, they don't speak unless they're spoken to. Um and they and they 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 determine very quickly. In there, they they speak their language to each other, mm. and they they determine very quickly that they're both Wiradjuri, um, and one you know Euro works in another station and so forth. And that moment really fills Wagadine's heart with some hope that at least she can have some connection with local people there because she hasn't seen any other blackfellas till then. Um, and then we see unfolding what we see on life on the river for the Wiradjuri mob in Wagga is very similar to the life that um, Wagadine had lived with her family on the river in Gundagai. And, and Wagadine meets those people, doesn't she, and then she starts to feel better about everything after that. She feels, she feels there's family. Yeah. So uh, she feels there's family there because we what we see also in this story is a, is a greater understanding for non-Indigenous readers that, you know, Wiradjuri people and other Aboriginal and First Nations people. It's not your your family. It's just not your your mother, father, and your brothers and sisters. And that we don't say first cousin, second cousin, third cousin. Everybody's everybody is your family. Um, in you know, in terms of um, you know, your your mother's your mother's sister is also your mother. So, um, I for me, it's, I want people to understand that that the importance of family for us. Um, and why, when we talk about the impacts of the stolen generations, you know, later, that's what that's what people lost. This is what you you write about the idea of kinship, isn't it? So at one point, Wagadine says everyone is related through kinship, so we are all one family, and I miss them all. So is that what you're talking about now? That yeah. idea of kinship being broader than just your immediate family? 
Yeah, it's it's right. And I think this is what this is where we see the struggle for Louisa as a you know a settler who's come out from the UK with her immediate family, uh, where non-Indigenous people, white people made choices. Like she came from, they made a choice to dislocate themselves, relocate to another country, whereas Aboriginal people or Adrian Mob can't can't understand that either. Why would you move yourself away from all the people that you love, from the country that gave you life, right? So, and I think that's, you know, that's where we see those two, you know, stark differences in culture and ways of thinking. But we also see one of my favourite moments in the book is when Wagadine, under pressure from Louisa, who wants all the time, takes her to meet the women and they have this beautiful gathering and some, you know, and they're trying to understand, like, what a Quaker is and they're getting confused with quacking and ducks and so forth. And that's that's quite a beautiful scene for me. Yeah, and that's um, that's interesting, is it, that Louisa is trying so hard, she's well-intentioned, it's like she can't even allow Wagadine have that to herself to be meeting, to be meeting her kin and to be meeting with people that are like family to her. She says, um, Wagadine says at one point, "Why do they want to take everything?" Would you like to talk a little bit about that? That notion of Louisa really pushing Wagadine to to introduce her to the the Rattari people. Well, it's sort of like I want to help you on my terms. So I yes, I want you to have I would love you to have your connection, but I'm coming with you. I want you to have equality, but I'm going to tell you how we're going to have it. I mean, I, we see I see this today everywhere. We see this with policy making. So yes, you want to close the gap, but we're going to tell you how it's going to happen instead of us doing it our way and listening. That moment we see the pressure that she puts on to um, Wagadine to take to take her to meet the elders. And, and Walgard, I was like, I just, nothing is just ours. Nothing is just mine. They take the land. They take our spirit. You know, they take uh, our, our freedom. And now I can't even go and just mm. have a conversation with these people without you coming and and having to, she, not that Louise is trying to grandstand. Louise is not even conscious of the impact of her presence there. It's interesting. Do you know there's there's a book club here in Brisbane and I know that the entire book club, the conversation was about Louisa. Uh. Yeah, so because we all read differently. Your listeners will read differently and see different things as well. And so, uh, you know, if it's a maybe it's because people see themselves in Louisa, maybe not that they're irritated by it, but maybe they're, they're irritated by some of the things that, she reminds them of doing themselves. I don't know, but it's interesting. You mentioned before that one of the tasks that falls to Wagadine in this new job is feeding the stockmen. And she meets uh, one of those stockmen, a man called Yindi. Could you tell us a little bit about what he's like, Anita? And I believe he's based on some, some men that you've met over the years. So tell us a little bit about what he's like and who he's based on. Okay, so Yindi, Yindi is short for Yinjimara. Yinjimara is a Wiradjuri word that means to honour and respect and to, to move forward to and to be gentle. And I, it's my favourite, all-time favourite Wiradjuri word. I have um, my one of my language teachers, Letitia Harris, her son is called Yinjimara, Yindi, and so I, he would be in the classroom while we were learning. And 
I think one of the good things about writing fiction is you could create, create the characters, well, ladies, you can write them in that you wish you could meet. But Yinjimara is is a composite of all the Wiradjuri men um, in my life um, and that I've known in my time. So he's strong and reliable and um, honest and caring and thoughtful and he he's family-oriented, he's strong in culture and identity and he's my brothers he's my brothers he's my uncles he's the men that I I work with he's my family in Brungle and so he appears as this you know the best stockman um I think he's probably got very good self-esteem no doubt he's got lots of self-esteem um he's good looking and um so he becomes he is Wagadine's entry into falling in love for the first time. And I wrote, there's a scene, one of the first scenes I write, I'm a plotter and I map the entire book out. And so if I get stuck on something, I just pick up something else. I don't never, I don't really get writer's block because I know what's going to happen in, uh, in point form. And I wrote, one of the first things I wrote was, and I think it's about chapter 16, it's a long way down, um, and it's when they first meet in the river, by the river, and it's for me it's just a beautiful scene. So we are going to leave it there in terms of plot, and I just wanted to talk to you a little bit now about the importance of the connection with the land for Wagadine and for her people. Wagadine explains to Louisa at one point, the earth gives us rain to drink and food from the land, so we should always respect it. If we respect the earth and sky, they'll respect us back. Could you tell us a little bit about Wagadine's connection to the land and how important that is to her? Well, I think we saw uh, when she, with the broom for a start, okay, so everything, stories are told through natural elements. Okay, the trees and so forth. We see in the novel um, Wagadine when she's dancing on the earth and she understands that um, her family, her aunties, will be dancing upstream as well. We see through the story um, co the collection of um, uh, gum leaves for smoking ceremonies and we learn through that process that you don't take something unless it's ready to give. So it, so if you're having to tug a branch off a tree, you're not meant to take it. It's not ready to give it to you. So we see a whole lot of respect for country as well, you know, and 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 the nature and the nature. We see a lot of respect for country and the natural wildlife that comes with that. And country is not just the land; it is the river as well. And we we'll, we know that the river is a character and what we, we you know, for your listeners, the, you know, Wiradjuri people are known as the, the people of um, the three rivers, the the Macquarie River, which is the Womble, the Galari, which is the Lachlan River, which runs through Cowra, where my mob are also from, and the Murrumbidgee Billa, which is the Murrumbidgee River. Um, and these are significant places of culture and history and heritage. And we know that the mob live along the, the river because it, they get sustenance from it. It gives, uh, you know, they fish and so forth. It gives life. We see in the novel birthing by the river in a special mm. places. Uh, the river and is the, it's the meeting place um, and a home base for a whole, you know, for peoples around the, around the country, not just Wiradjuri mob. Um, and we we know also that that river, particularly the Murrumbidgee Billa, is the is a river that 
you know, they, the, the lovers dream by, but also we know through the flood and other, other events within the novel that the river takes dreams away as well. Let's talk now about the Wiradjuri language. So I gather you started learning the Wiradjuri language in 2018 when you were 50 at Charles Sturt University, the campus in Wagga Wagga, and that was the land of your ancestors. Tell us about that experience. How did you enjoy that? Best thing I've ever done. I can't, I, I, everything happens at the right time. You learn that one of the first things I learned in class when I was struggling because it's a completely different grammar system. As I say, we've got an dictionary and, you know, a number of different linguists had recorded language. So we could have like eight different words for the same word um, because different linguists have done different things. And, and you know, the work of Dr John Rutter and Uncle, Uncle Stan Grant or Dr Uncle Stan Grant has been extraordinary in pulling all that material together. We're incredibly lucky. We're Adri people because we have a lot of resources. We now have, you know, I walked into this classroom with a cohort um, in my class, maybe there was 18 people and now each, each year the cohorts have like triple that. Um, and so more, I think it was like 80 this year. Are you still going to classes? I'm not still going. I'll be learning forever because I know like um, like 0.0001% of what I need to learn. Um, um, so, but I walked into the class in both Wiradjuri and non-Indigenous people in the class. So it's the, in my class, I had school teachers who teach on Wiradjuri country and wanted to be able to, uh, they wanted to be better teachers for their Koori kids and they wanted to be better able to in, embed Indigenous voices and, and so forth in the classroom. And so that's an, that was um, you know, a wonderful thing to see. It's the, I think Charles Sturt University is the only university in the country that does this. And so it's a two-year uh, grad cert in Wiradjuri uh, language, culture and heritage, but we do nation building as well. Um, and I just feel, I mean, it's a quite an emotional thing to do because I'm sitting in an, in, in an academic institution with Wiradjuri language teachers talking about nation building, reclaiming language, which to me is an act of sovereignty. At the same time, absolutely aware that my old people couldn't do that, you know, that my mother was born on a mission living under active protection and policies of assimilation where language was outlawed and my grandmother was in Kudamundra Aboriginal Girls' Home and I'm sitting in a classroom with elders as well who weren't allowed to speak their language as children, who were learning their language in their 60s and 70s. And so it's, it, 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 it's wonderful, it's joyful. I felt absolutely absolutely um, privileged, but it's also a reminder that at the age of 50, I was learning what should have been my first language. Something I meant to mention before with Wagadine, we learned she's not allowed She's not allowed to speak her language in the Bradley home, is no, she? No. Or elsewhere, in fact. That was, and that was just, that was standard across the country because, the you know, you Aboriginal people were expected to act and be like white people. And the policies of removal were really about disconnecting Aboriginal people from country, from community, from culture, from identity, from language. From so that family. From family. So that eventually the kids mm. that were dark went to training homes like my 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 grandmother to learn to be servants and or they go to Kinchler and be stockmen. And the fair-skinned kids would get adopted out because eventually they would be bred out mm. 
and the dark ones would eventually die out and we would no longer be a problem to be solved. And so um, when you when I was learning my language, like, and I've, you know, I've written a novel on the stolen generations, but, and I've read the Bringing Them Home report, and, and you know, I, I don't know one Aboriginal person whose family hasn't been impacted by policies of protection. But so learning the language for me is actually joyful and painful at the same time. You you mentioned something before that I've seen you say elsewhere. Maybe it was in the afterwards this book. You said that continuing to learn the Wiradjuri language is a reclamation of sovereignty and a chance to be part of the process of rebuilding our mighty nation. I would like you to talk a little bit about that, especially that concept of reclaiming sovereignty through language. I thought that was a really powerful statement. Um, I feel like we talk about, blackfellas often talk about, you know, was sovereignty never ceded, obviously, in terms of land and so forth. Yes. But I think what quite most, most days we feel disempowered in terms of voice in policy making and so forth. But what I've seen in for me in the last since I started learning in 2018, in the last three years, is that every day that I can speak language, every conference and keynote I give or attend, and I get up and I acknowledge country and my elders, and my ancestors in language, I feel it's an act of sovereignty and it's a reminder. And the cover and the language in this novel, I didn't know when I started, had the idea for this novel that I would be writing language because I hadn't enrolled in my language course when I when I had decided to write this novel. But what I wanted it to be was a small contribution mm. to that. But what I want it to be now, since writing it and with the, the language on the cover, is I want it to be a reminder to everybody that everywhere they walk in Australia, there is a first language and it's not English. We all think, you know, English is the first language of this country. It's not. You know, you know, the there's a brilliant video by the Indigenous Literacy Foundation uh, around the work they do up in Tiwi in particular. And there's a young girl in that video and she says, I speak three languages and she rattles off the three languages, but she says it in English. In fact, she speaks four language, four languages. And what we fail to recognise, we, what non-Indigenous people throughout history since the point of invasion have failed to recognise is the actual level of intelligence and knowledge that Aboriginal people carry every day. Mm. And I want, and so when we talk about the great flood and those men that went out on those canoes at a time when they were being moved off their own country, mind you, right, and acted and, and living under acts like Masters and Servants Acts, went out to save white lives, mm. knowledge that they must have had of that river to be able to work that dream flood is extraordinary. And it's only in recent times with the, the devastating bushfires that we had, in, you know, in the last two years, has Indigenous cultural burning and that knowledge around that started to be considered by the mainstream. Mm. And it is something that we should make clear to listeners that I, I probably didn't before is that the, the Wiradjuri language is sprinkled throughout this book and at the end there's a glossary, a wonderful glossary, so that if as you're reading this, listeners, you see a word that you don't recognise, flip to the glossary at the back and you'll um, you'll see the English translation. And one of the things that you mentioned, you talked about the work of Dr Uncle Stan Grant. I assume he's the father of the journalist. Yes. yes. And Dr John Rudder, the work that they've done in reclaiming language. And you talk about, um, I think they produced this, the new Wiradjuri Dictionary, English to Wiradjuri and Wiradjuri to English. Is that is that their work? 
Yeah, that's correct. So they've, you know, that first came out, oh, I think, two decades ago now, and it's, you know, wow. there's new editions and so forth, and there's a grammar book as well. But we've got CDs, you know, I've got CDs I put in the car, we've got games and cards and you name it, we've got it. Um, and so I, I did. I do need to acknowledge Dr. John Rudder has passed away, so I, um, I want to acknowledge that today as well. Anita, I've just got a couple more questions. As far as you know, has there been much fiction written from the perspective of a young Indigenous woman in the 19th century? Oh, gosh. Not that I know, not that I know of, but you, I, it's a great question. And for your listeners, I where you could search that is on Black Words, which is a research community in Auslit, which uh, indexes everything that has been published by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers and storytellers, and you can search by uh, gender plus place, publication date, um, theme, topic, Wiradjuri or whatever. So check out Black Words on um, Auslit. Thank you. My final question, what has the reaction to your book been in Wiradjuri country? Oh, do you know, I've had, I have bad anxiety. And for two months before this book came out, I was sick every day with nausea. I had blood tests. I didn't know what was going on. And it wasn't until I had my first event that it all dissipated. It all disappeared. And so um, because I wanted people in Gundagai and Brungle and Wagga in particular, because that's where the novel is set, to be happy with my version of the story that belongs to everybody. Right. And so when I got to Gundagai, I mentioned Ian Horsley came to the launch. I'd spoken to him. He came early and we had a cup of tea. And he's Sony Piper, who's the matriarch of Brungle. Uh, she did the launch with Miriam Crane, who is, um, she hates me saying this, but she's the font of all knowledge of Gundagai and read my drafts and so forth of the novel. And so when we were in Gundagai was the first stop on country for the for the launch, and it was just beautiful. And I I could relax then. And then the next morning we went over to Tumut, which is about a 20-minute drive. We went to Tumut and um, Annie Winnie and Annie Sue Bolger, they launched it there. And what was interesting is they both talked about how the story, although in the 18th, uh, in 1860s and so forth, um, and they're obviously, you know, were born much, much later than that, they, they, they talked about how the story actually spoke to their reality growing up in Wiradjuri country as well. And so then there were students there from Tumut High School, so it was good for them to hear that. And kids from Brungle Primary, they did a beautiful in-language welcome to country. Um, and then, of course, I did an event. We did an event in Griffith because I have family in Griffith, Wiradjuri country as well. And we made that a tribute to uh, my cousin, Roger Penrith, who, who died suddenly last Christmas. And, again, loads of local mob come along. And then Annie uh, Elaine Lomas, who was Uncle Stan Grant's sister, we call her Bajaja. She did a beautiful launch in Canberra. So I felt by the time all that was over um, that I had that I could say that people were happy. I hope they all are. That sounds like a wonderful note to end on. Anita, thank you so much for talking to us about your beautiful book, Bila Yarudangalang Dure. I hope I've done that justice. It's been wonderful talking to you and I um, I really recommend your book very warmly to all listeners. In my language, I say mandangu. That's thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberley.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.